I have spent enough time with both of you to know that you are going to be fantastic at having a conversation together. Great. So that's good. Are we good? We're good. Welcome to Why Not Change the World, the RPI podcast. I am your host, Jeannie Hedden Gallagher. And in this episode, we are talking about the Anthropocene. My guests are Daniel Lander, a lecturer of civil and environmental engineering at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. Morning. And Brandon Costello-Kuhn, a lecturer of science and technology studies at Rensselaer. Hi, great to be here with you. Thank you so very much. Daniel and Brandon have collaborated to bring a speaker series to the Rensselaer campus that they call Engineering the Anthropocene. And I do want to hear more about that. But to begin, I want to jump right in. What in the name of goodness is the Anthropocene? Daniel? Well, the Anthropocene is a, a proposed new geologic epoch, right? A, a geologic time that's being discussed in the scientific and social science literature, um, basically pointing to the fact uh, that since mm, sometime, you know, and the date is being discussed as to when it should begin quite um, thoroughly, but basically that we humans and that the anthro have changed the world so substantially that we are now kind of pushing ourselves out of what's called the Holocene, which is kind of the last 12,000 years or so. Um, an incredibly stable climate with CO2 levels around 280 parts per million. And we're, we're now up at something like 415 and we're, you know, we're moving into a, a new um, kind of new equilibrium or a new dynamic equilibrium um, that we're, we're so naming the, the Anthropocene, the time of the human. So Brandon did the, so the name came from, where did the name come from and and when will it be defined as uh yes we are in the anthropocene yeah so the there is quite a lot of debate around this term in in my kind of area of academia in social sciences humanities um science and technology studies um and so in calling the series engineering the anthropocene we wanted to stage some potentially difficult conversations about how engineers, but not just engineers, um, how many different professions and disciplines and human activities are really radically reshaping the world um, in ways that are causing a lot of problems. And a lot of those problems uh, are problems for human beings and for many others. So we're in this mass extinction. Um, we had Elizabeth Colbert here. Um, at RPI not long ago, talking about her book on that topic. Um, I'm sure we'll get into more, more of the details around climate change. Um, but one of the, the ideas that we also want to talk about is how, what, what would a good Anthropocene look like? Right? So the, at, here at Rensselaer, there's, there's a, lot of, um, a lot of students, a lot of faculty, a lot of uh, people generally that are trying to think of how we can change the world in a really positive way. And so it, it doesn't have to be that human impact is always negative. Even in sustainability discourse, we often speak as if it is. Um, we often say, you know, we should try to reduce our impact. We should try to make our footprint smaller. And that's very true in many, many contexts. But I think we also have to start to think about how humans could have a regenerative or reparative impact on the world. Um, and just to highlight one of our, our speakers, um, well, one of our events, uh, Sachem Hawkstorm, 
um, who's a, a leader within the, the Scaticoke people, um, and uh, Roberto Barrero. Uh, they, they spoke about how they come from these lineages where human beings tended the landscapes and tended the forests so that there was abundant food for, for humans and for many, many, many other beings. And so that yeah, this this particular semester, the series is um, was kicked off with with those indigenous perspectives. How how did you guys determine the speaker? How did you determine the list? What were what were some interesting factors that that helped you determine who would be coming to campus? Or let's broaden it a little bit more from beyond who's coming to campus, but why these voices, why it's, why is it important to hear from all of these speakers? Yeah. So one, one kind of guiding principle that we were using um, as we were kind of starting to, to look through the thousands of people who are working in topics related to the Anthropocene, you know, it, it's such a broad, has such broad impact that, you know, we can, we can really pull from th- hundreds of different disciplines, thousands, right? One thing that we were really trying to do and a goal of the series has been to kind of collapse this idea of like separate disciplines, right? This is a problem which is inherently both technical and social, right? And so a lot of the motivation, I will say as well, you know, we recognize that we're on a campus where uh, 65% of the student body are uh, engineers, right? And we have a, a long prestigious history of being a polytechnic for engineers. Um, and so we, we kind of recognize that and we're trying to bring engineers, people who are primarily spend most of their academic careers focusing and, and, and sharpening their, their technical capability to, to really go deep on one or two topics. Right. And what we've tried to do is bring engineers who are willing to, um, well, you know, engineers and many others, right, who are willing to talk about the social consequences or the social context in which their technical work happens, right? And then the flip side, we're also interested in those people engaged much more in, you know, their, their primary discipline is much more focused on the social sciences or uh, social dimensions of the Anthropocene, right, but are working in the context of technical work, right? So, so we're trying to implicitly collapse this boundary um, and see what we learn from one another. Uh, so I, I feel like that's been kind of one of the primary um, motivations. Um, and I don't know if you would like to exp- uh, expound on that, Brandon. Yeah, I think we, we've also been seeking out speakers who uh, at least to some small degree are capable of going beyond a purely intellectual level of, of discourse and conversation. Um, of course, we are searching for academic rigor and we're bringing some of the, the world experts on these topics. Um, but some of the speakers, we were also really excited about their ability to, to connect with students on an emotional level, to talk about values and ethics and, and bodies and um, even spirituality, topics that are pretty often excluded from, from institutions of higher learning. How are humans impacting the climate? What have you learned through this, uh, this process? Yeah, so there's, there's a few kind of key numbers that I, I often think of as a way into this. Um, but I'll say right off the bat that um, numbers are only one way of telling the story. And for some people, maybe a lot of people at, at RPI, where there is more of a technical focus, 
um, numbers and graphs and kind of science communication can be really compelling. And then for many others, it, um, they, they don't really mean much at all. Um, so, so when I say that humans have changed the, the um, climate by about one degree Celsius right now, it's easy to think, well, you know, especially here in, in upstate New York, that sounds awesome. <laughs> like just a little bit warmer in the winters. The summers aren't really too hot anyway. That sounds great. Um, but the, the kind of the world community, with very few exceptions, has said that we really do not want to cross 1.5 degrees Celsius. And we definitely don't want to cross 2 degrees Celsius. So that's what the Paris Accord is about. Um, and even like massively oil producing countries have signed on to this consensus that we do not want to go beyond two degrees. Um, some of the reasons for that involve, there's a whole litany of, of things like um, increased wildfires that we're seeing very visibly now. Um, increased flooding. My apartment has flooded twice. The, the hill over by Sage Avenue was washed out in August and it took a long time to rebuild. So right here, even on campus, we are experiencing some, some changes. Now, it's, it's important to distinguish between climate and weather, mm -hmm. but it's also important to make the connections between climate and weather. Mm -hmm. um, nobody really cares about climate in the, as such, right? It's, it's average temperatures, but we do care when our basement floods. Um, and so one of our speakers, Allison Kenner, is an RPI graduate. She got her PhD a few years ago in science and technology studies. In the last few decades, I think in about 50 years, um, the average amount of rain in the really heavy rain events in the Northeast mm -hmm. has gone up by around 75%. And that's a few years old already, that data. It, it might be approaching 100% by now. Um, and so our infrastructures are built for one world and one kind of set of conditions. And we are, we, as Dan has been saying, we're, we're leaving that kind of relatively safe sweet spot of the Holocene and entering a totally different world. So we have to reevaluate our infrastructures. We have to reevaluate um, questions of environmental justice, where some populations have already been bearing the, the heavy lift and burden of environmental issues. Um, not in my backyard ism is, is still a very big thing. And um, so, yeah, the, there's not really any part of the world or society that is not currently being touched by climate change or will be in a big way in, in the coming decades. One of the things that I um, that I found while researching this series is that it seemed like the first semester you brought in experts that established the fact that humans are impacting climate change and that this series, the spring series, is really, it's a, it's a shift. It's now how is climate change impacting humans? And that's one of your taglines in your description. It's it's how is how are humans impacting climate change? And then how is now that there is climate change, how is that in, impacting humanity? Um, would you say that would be a fair way to look at how all of this is happening? Um, you're, you're talking to labor experts. You're talking to yeah, the indigenous. Just, you're talking to indigenous peoples. You're talking to, you know, reproductive justice and how it deals with climate change. You know, that is how the climate change is now impacting our lives. Yeah, I think we could slice it that way neatly. I don't think that there was an intention to do so that way. I think we really started with the premise that, and we found pretty 
soon on. I think uh, the first two or three speakers actually gave like a primer on what like uh, climate change is and like made the case that it's anthropogenic, right? That humans are doing it. And the feedback that I got from my students was like, like, yeah, we get it. We know, like, let's get to like, let's get to the facts. Like, let's get to what's actually going on. So, you know, I pretty quickly encouraged the speakers after that moment to just take it that people understand that we're doing it um, and then uh, get to, to what it is that they're, you know, they're presenting on in particular. Um, Yeah. I don't know. You know, the first speaker that we, that we brought was Darshan Kawat and, you know, he straight out of the gate was looking at, you know, like, what does it mean to have an engineering that is for the people, right? Like, um, you know, he didn't mention, you know, anthropogenic carbon emission at all, right? CO2 emissions at all. He was, he was right there looking at, you know, like what can, like, what does a discipline of engineering look like, um, that takes this as given, right. And then really reflects on like, what, like, how does it respond I could kind of run with that. So this idea of climate change as a wake-up call, I think is really compelling. Cl- climate change as a strategic opportunity is how um, Kari Marie Norgard, one of our recent mm. speakers, spoke about it, building on the insights and wisdom from her um, indigenous, um, um, the people that she collaborates with um, in Northern California and, and Southern Oregon. Um, and so this idea of the climate is changing. We're starting to have more information and data and that's all getting way better that the models are improving. Um, it, it could really throw into question what is the role of the engineer and not just how are we treating the environment and then how is the environment treating us or impacting us, but how are we treating each other through the medium of the environment, mm-hmm. right? If, if there's a smokestack a mile um, upwind of a school it's not so much that we're impacting the environment and then it's impacting us. Like we are polluting that school, the children in that school. Right. Um, and so the, even the, the very idea of nature, which is a term that is used a lot in kind of pro sustainability discourse has a risk of separating humans from the environment. Right. Because we often define nature as that, which is not human, that which is untouched by human. It's, it's natural if it didn't come from a lab. And, and then on the other hand, we, there's this human exceptionalism where we define humans as something completely different from the rest of nature. Um, uh, right. Like phrases like man made and, and, and human made, it, it, it tends to imply a kind of like synthetic quality. And so one of the wake up calls, I hope that climate change brings to humanity is to really deeply question that, that bright line that exists between nature on the one hand and humans on the other. And so even if we don't, it's hard to even have the language for this because even when we talk about interaction between humans and the environment, interaction suggests that there are two separate things coming together. Um, Karen Barad has this idea of intra-action that tries to get a, a little bit more of the kind of enfolding of things. Um, and, and while we're at it, there's so many other lines that we need to be questioning, all kinds of binaries around you know, black, white, male, female. There's the world is populated with many of them, and a lot of them do a lot of harm. Rensselaer is known for being a polytechnic, right? They encourage cross-disciplinary interaction. How did you guys decide on 
uh, a speaker series rather than a paper? Yeah, I can take that. Um, so uh, it, the, the initial formation was uh, I was having dinner with my, my, the chair of my department and um, I'd been doing a lot of reading and really absorbing, you know, this was about a year, almost two years ago now, and really absorbing kind of the situation that we find ourselves in in um, a lot more detail and was really feeling called um, to, to make my work engaged with this in a very serious way. And so the chair of my department and I over dinner, um, you know, I asked him, you know, what would it be, would it be possible for me to curate our regular colloquium series in civil engineering, but do it with the frame of like, how are civil engineers responding to climate change? Right. And he was like, great, the whole semester is yours. Go for it. And then over a few, so he's been incredibly supportive. Um, and I can't thank him enough for that. Um, and so that was kind of the initial, uh, like, why it ended up being a, a speaker series rather than something else. Um, but in kind of subsequent conversations, uh, we we realized together that actually we need like we need an economist to come and talk to us. We're like, oh wow, that this dimension is not going to be covered. Like when we talk, you know, just about dams or just about uh, f- like storm surge or things that are in the, you know, the field of civil engineering. And so we we quickly realized that we didn't, we needed a collaborator, um, that was outside of our expertise, so to speak. And so, um, so I reached out to, to Brandon, uh, who, uh, we've known each other for, for many years now. And, um, and that's how that initial collaboration started. And then, you know, Nancy Campbell, who's the chair of STS is, was equally supportive, um, in, allowing the series to come together. So the two departments are are basically not having their own separate um, colloquium series. We forego, we forewent both of them um, and are doing this combined series instead. And I think it's been very, very powerful uh, and brought a lot of good attention to both of our uh, respective departments. And and we do hope that it, it doesn't just end with the talks or the series. We hope it has a, a bigger impact, kind of a rippling effect. And so one of the things we've been doing is giving some of the many really active and amazing student groups a voice in the beginning of some of the talks. So we've had a a student sustainability task force for many years. Um, There's Engineers Without Borders and Engineers for a Sustainable World. And um, that organization has a carbon countdown initiative. So there's incredible energy and ideas and skills that the students are bringing to the questions that the speakers are bringing up. Um, And the students are working towards uh, the kind of infrastructure that we really need to build our capacity for this. So things like an office of sustainability, a director of sustainability, a a rigorous climate action plan, um, and things seem to be moving in those directions quickly. Um, So I'm just super confident to follow the lead of of student-led initiatives here as we continue to green RPI, as we partner with the city of Troy, we're right near Albany. So there's incredible connections to connect with uh, lawmakers and policymakers at the state level and just keep kind of scaling up and, and really think like, how are we walking the walk and how are we engaging at, at the global scale as well? It seems like your hope is that it impacts the students and they take it with them to create the next generation. Is that fair? Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, um, 
I mean, absolutely. One of the the primary goals has been to create uh, a more regenerative culture uh, within RPI, right? And and a big focus of that has been about supporting the students who, um, I mean, you don't have to tell them that this stuff is going on, right? They they are highly aware, and they kind of have to they have to balance um, these different truths, if you will. Um, as they're kind of navigating academic their, their academic careers, right? Um, one where you know they've been told um, over and over again to get a, a good job that pays well, that's uh, that's going to allow you to have a family and all all of these things, and um, and then the other is that you know literally in the next thirty years we could be looking at one in nine people being displaced from their homes due to drought and rising sea levels, right? Like, like what are the political realities of that consequence? Right. Like, so they have to hold these things together. Um, and, and, you know, it's crazy making, I, I see it for them, right. They want to work in a field where they can make a positive difference and they know what that is. Right. And then quite often it's difficult for them, uh, to actually find a job that meets that, that calling, right, uh, to, to make a positive difference. And so part of this, this dialogue is, um, is about supporting them in, in imagining a future that's not just available to them at the career fair here, right? It's, they might have to invent it, right? But giving them uh, a framework in which they can imagine um, the impact that they're going to have uh, in a really different a different setting. Um, and so, you know, for me, that's one way that I, re- I really love my job as an educator, as someone who's given the incredible opportunity to be in a room full of students and inspire them to think really big and like, don't hold back. Right. Um, and, and this, this tool, uh, this speaker series, right. Is, is a way for me to interact with them, right? And to like, let them really imagine and really be inspired. And so that's how I'm really thinking about the rippling out effects is like, there will be, uh, you know, a few years of RPI students who will irrevocably be changed by this series. Um, and, uh, you know, what are the impacts of that when you empower people with the skills that RPI engineers and, and, you know, RPI students in general come out with, you know, it's a low leverage point for having, you know, positive impact. Yeah. That's, that's one of the reasons that I love teaching here specifically so much is that our PI graduates do go out and change the world in so many very material ways. And my background is in anthropology and studying the intersections of how science, technology, and society all co-shape each other. And in a way it would be easier to have those conversations at, a straight up liberal arts college where everybody speaks more or less that that same kinds of language. Um, But I find it far more rewarding to work with students that overall have a a really strong technical focus and then provide some of these frameworks to help them understand social impact and equity questions and, and things along those lines. Um, And, and one, one kind of wake up call that for me happened when I stopped thinking about, the direct impact of a changing climate in terms of rising sea levels and these other things. And I just want to draw out what Dan's saying about, we don't really know the numbers, but if about one in nine people are displaced due to food shortages, 
due to rising sea level due to other climate change impacts. It's really easy to hear that number and and not have it really hit home. Um, but I, when I read parts of this um, UN IPCC report that came out um, a year and a half ago or so, it was the one that's comparing 1.5 degrees to 2 degrees. And for the first time, those numbers about hundreds of millions of people being displaced from their homes and being climate refugees. I mean, that's a human humanitarian crisis. It's easy to feel some kind of empathy around that. But I started thinking immediately, what are, what are the political consequences of that? I mean, look at our political landscape now. There's, there's so much othering and, and fear-mongering and blaming um, the people that largely have contributed the least to climate change. Right? And so kind of certain forms of toxic nationalism and all these other forces that are at play right now, the, the resurgence of fascism around the world. I mean, the, these are the questions related to climate change that keep me up at night. Um, Kate Marvel, a climate scientist who we hope comes and speaks here with us at some point, um, talks about that shift in her own thinking where you know, she was a scientist at NASA looking into all these details of the environment, but she's much more concerned with how we treat each other and how does a climate, a changing climate relate to a changing politics geopolitically. Um, that, that is, those are huge questions and we really do need people with social and technical skills kind of at the same time collaborating, working on those questions. Well, you know, is there, is there hope? Like, are, is that what you're doing this for? Mm -hmm. I think like what you are hoping for, like needs some framing there. Carrie Norgard, our last speaker, um, said this thing at the end of her talk, which really hit home for me because I grew up playing basketball and her, she said her son has been playing on a team this, this semester and, um, and they go and, uh, they know they're going to lose every time. Right. And, and she asked the question, what do you, like, how do you prepare for the game when you know you're going to lose? Right. And I know that exact feeling. The first basketball team I played on, I lost every game in that season and it was brutal. It was so hard, but I showed up every week and I got really, I got really good at basketball pretty quick after that. Right. Um, but you know, you know, the, the point there is, you know, we have already lost in, in a way that like we have, we have created conditions for many people around the world which are not going to go back to how they were, right? Like things have already irrevocably been changed, right? And so, um, you know, like hope for, for what, right? And, you know, at the moment we're, we're you know, we're heading, you know, in a very scary direction and it doesn't actually look like we're putting the brakes on um, at a rate which is going to uh, allow us to, to, to stop going off that cliff. One way that I, I already brought up Kate Marvel, um, the, the climate scientist, but the way she approaches this question, I find really inspiring. She says we, we don't really need hope. We need courage. Right? We, we don't need to um, get rid of anxiety and, and fear and just be optimistic and, um, and hopeful. We need to figure out ways to move forward with that fear. And that is, to me, what, what courage means. Um, and we also need to, to get better at telling hard truths about these mm -hmm. kinds of things. Um, it, it is possible we could invent some magic technology that would 
rapidly start sucking carbon out of the air. Um, but I, I personally, from the research I've done, don't think that's very likely. And even if we did, there's so much acidification in the oceans and all these other things. So the, the world is is damaged. And that's why we, we, to go back to one of my earlier comments, we really need to shift our thinking from reducing our human impact to thinking about how we can repair this landscape that's already very broken. And for many people in the world, even before climate change started ramping up, um, just the legacies of colonialism and, and slavery and racism, like there are aspects of the worlds that we probably shouldn't try to sustain, right? How do, how do we let those go or actively be anti-racist? And then what are the values that we want to, to run with and help build into the world? Right. Gentlemen, I want to thank you both for coming. Why Not Change the World is recorded in the soloist suite at MPAC, the Curtis R. Priem Experimental Media and Performing Arts Center at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. Thank you to the MPAC staff for their assistance, and thank you all for listening. Thank you.